Welcome to the Hope Unyielding podcast, a podcast where people from all walks of life share stories of God's faithfulness in the dark, difficult, or perplexing parts of their journeys. I'm your host, Hope Johnson, and you're listening to part three of a three-part series where I share myths I believed about what it means to be satisfied in Christ when earthly desires go unfulfilled, particularly the desire for a spouse. In part one, I unpacked the myth that being truly satisfied in Christ meant I would no longer desire a spouse. If you've ever struggled with guilt or shame over the intensity of your desire for marriage, I encourage you to go back and listen to part one. In part two, I unpacked the myth that being satisfied in Christ meant I would constantly feel his love and presence. If you've wrestled with what it actually looks like to be satisfied in Christ, check out part two. Today, I'm sharing some very personal stories as I tackle the final myth I believed about satisfaction in Christ, the myth that we can be fully satisfied with Christ during this life. Come outside and be with me. The voice wasn't audible, but I knew the impression was from him. At 18, I was learning to hear his voice, and I followed. I followed him out of my dorm room, slid into a wooden picnic table, and was stunned by a sunset I'll never forget. The pinks and oranges screamed his glory, the light soaked me in hope, and hot tears welled in joyful eyes. I knew he had planned this view for me. But the glory was tainted by a familiar pang. This moment, this beauty, I longed to share with someone for the same emotions and life to course through them, for them to slip their hand in mine, look at me and say, I know. The sky declared the greatest glory I'd ever seen, yet it felt incomplete. The pain was all the sharper because this beauty called for intimacy. In this moment of coexisting loneliness and joy, his voice spoke to my spirit again. Do you want me to make your life this beautiful? Just wait. And I did. I waited, and I thought that the closer I got to Christ, the more the desire for human intimacy would lessen. But the opposite happened. The deeper I grew in Christ, the more I experienced these sunset moments, the more the longing grew to share his glory with someone whose heart beat in time with mine for an intimate friend to journey with, or so I thought. Three years later, I was in Russia for a summer language program, a dream come true, an eight-week version of that glorious sunset at age 18. I'd felt called to Russia since I was 12, and that summer was a vivid gift. I reveled in every whiff of morning air spiced with cigarette smoke and sunshine, every taste of my host mom Tatiana's cherry vareniki, every sound of the intricate Russian language. I sat alone in Tatiana's kitchen in a rare moment of quiet, drinking piping hot tea in the 90 degree heat of the ninth floor apartment, as Russians often do. Even in the sweltering heat, I felt a joyful energy. I was living the dream God had put in my heart long ago, When Tatiana's analog radio started to play a melancholy song, the music grabbed my heart 
and the joy suddenly burst into longing as intense as I'd felt when I was stunned by the sunset. If only someone were here with me in this moment. A person, the right person, would take the ache away, wouldn't he? About six months after sitting in Tatiana's kitchen, I learned a word that articulated this longing, a word which made me realize that my yearning went beyond the desire for a human soulmate. Brent Curtis, in John Eldridge's book The Sacred Romance, explores how our longing for intimacy ultimately points to our desire for communion with God. The authors adopt C.S. Lewis's use of the German word Sensucht as a way of framing this desire. Lewis uses the word Sensucht to describe the longing for transcendence, for intimacy beyond what this world allows. Certain songs, places, experiences, and memories evoke this Sensucht in the human heart. While on one hand, this Sensucht points me to the Creator, it also strikes me with my state of loneliness in a fallen world. What I felt while observing the sunset and sitting in Tatiana's kitchen are examples of what Lewis describes in The Problem of Pain as desire that points to heaven. He says, There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. All the things that have ever deeply possessed your soul have been but hints of that something which you were born desiring. Tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled, echoes that died away just as they caught your ear. But if it should really become manifest, if there ever came an echo that did not die away but swelled into the sound itself, you would know it. Beyond all possibility of doubt, you would say, here at last is the thing I was made for. We cannot tell each other about it. It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work, and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. While we are, this is. If we lose this, we lose all. Eldridge and Curtis echo Lewis, saying that the deepest longings we experience are not for a person, but for God. They write, In all of our hearts lies a longing for a sacred romance. It will not go away in spite of our efforts over the years to anesthetize or ignore its song or attach it to a single person or endeavor. It is a romance couched in mystery and set deeply within us. My longings in these acute moments of joy may have seemed to be a cry for intimacy with a person, but as I contemplate their guttural depth, I agree with Lewis, Eldridge, and Curtis that they point not to a person, but to my longing for communion with Christ in heaven, the evidence that as Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity in the hearts of men. It's key that I distinguish this sensect from a healthy desire for a spouse, because my longing is so great that if directed at another person, it would overwhelm and destroy them. Distinguishing between these desires is especially difficult where marriage is concerned, 
because marriage is the earthly picture of the church's joyful union with Christ. We have to wrestle to distinguish our yearnings as best we can, both to give God the praise he is due and to bless our future spouses, should we marry. In this fallen world, we will never be fully satisfied in Christ. If by satisfaction, we mean a perfectly joyful and intimate union. But is this a bad thing? Our longing often feels cruel. If Jesus said we wouldn't go hungry, then why do we not constantly experience this reality? But imagine that the inverse were true. What if we lived with, as I talked about in the last episode, a type of reverse Prater Willy syndrome, never eating because we never felt hunger? What if we walked around completely joyful, blissfully unaware of the suffering around us? What if we were blinded to our glorious future reality? The sense that something is not right on earth, the longing for intimacy that is never quite fulfilled, is part of God's design to point our gaze toward heaven. 2 Corinthians 4, 8-11 says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. In these verses, does Paul sound comfortable and fulfilled? He has a fiery passion for the Lord, yet is struggling in many ways. Paul continues in verses 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul described himself not as receiving his earthly desires, but as outwardly wasting away. But what compelled him to keep going was fixing his eyes on a future that he couldn't see, but that he would stake his life on. Our longings are not evidence that Jesus' words are untrue, but that we have more to look forward to than we can imagine. Dr. Matthew Tan presents the refreshing idea that the bottomless abyss of our desires can lead us to offer God the praise he deserves. He says, The deep well of the heart is precisely where God shall be exalted. We can cite a couple of reasons for this. The first reason, identified by Thomas Aquinas, is that recognizing the depths of our desire is the first step to recognizing that we are incapable of filling that abyss. Only God can do that. And our recognition of that, Thomas says, is a step towards adopting a posture of praise of the Lord. Tan's words challenge me. When I'm overcome by longing, am I tempted to worship the idea of a soulmate? Or do I allow it to position me in a posture of praise toward the only one capable of fulfilling my deepest yearnings? 
Unfulfilled desires on earth are a gift when we recognize that they point to Jesus, the only bread who can truly satisfy us. When we don't feel satisfied, it's not evidence that Jesus' words are not true, but that his words spoke of a spiritual reality that is far vaster than our short stint on earth. Jesus has shown me overwhelmingly what it means that he is the bread of life. He made a way for this woman who would otherwise starve to death to be nourished into eternal life. Jesus didn't mean, though, that my stomach would always feel full in a worldly sense. Though I have everything I need, I still must traverse a fallen world with his help. When Jesus speaks to his disciples in John 15, shortly before he's crucified, he doesn't say, be satisfied in me. He says, abide in me. Stay close to me. Learn from me. Lean on me. Whatever comes. Abide in me on an earth that will stretch your faith in a world where you will have trouble, in a reality where you often won't feel satisfied. Jesus didn't call us to pursue the Buddhist ideal of nirvana, to get over our desires or pretend that they don't exist. He doesn't expect us to feel joy in every moment. He doesn't call us to feel guilty for having desires that he himself said were good. No, he calls us to walk by faith not by feelings. He calls us to walk through trouble while trusting that he has overcome the world. And he calls us to recognize that our deepest longings won't be met this side of heaven, but that when they are, we will be more satisfied than we can imagine. Thanks for listening to this episode of Hope Unyielding. This was part three in a three-part series on myths I believed about what it means to be satisfied in Christ when earthly desires go unfulfilled. This series is an adaptation of my free ebook, Unsatisfied, which you can download on my website. To get your free download, check out hopeunyielding.com or click the link in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. I pray that Jesus would overwhelm you with the truth that he is the bread of life.